This morning, we want to tackle a, a little bit more of a sobering topic. We're going to take a break from 2 Corinthians for one week. I know we just started last week, but just a, a little bit of a break. Um, I was planning to do a, a short thing on, on Sanctity of Life today, and then a, a short thing on the next passage of 2 Corinthians, and it would have shortchanged both. As I was preparing, I'm like, no, we need to spend... Um, some more time on sanctity of life and some more time on Second Corinthians, the next passage of Second Corinthians, because it's a wonderful passage too. But today is a, um, a day where we deal with sanctity of life, and that is a difficult issue. It's a weighty issue. Um, as I, I told Susie yesterday, it was an oppressing issue to even talk through and to think through some of the things that are going on and some of the tragedies that are happening in America today. Friday, as as many of you know, was the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision back in 1973 when abortions were made legal and they would say safe and legal for all. And and they thought that that was decided at that point, but it is hardly decided. And it is an issue that we as a church need to stand against. But to stand against it, we need to understand what we believe and we need to understand how to make an argument, how to make a persuasive and winsome argument for what we believe couple of facts that I want to read that are out of a, a, a guide, a prayer guide, 21 Days of Prayer for Life that I have links to on our website already or on our, our Facebook page. About one in three women will have an abortion by age 45. Think about that for a minute. Nearly two-thirds of women having abortions say they are Christian. It makes a lot of sense though, doesn't it? Because of the pressure to look a certain way, to be a certain way. Almost half, 49% of abortions are among women and teens 24 years old and younger. More than 85% of abortion-minded women will change their minds about having an abortion if they are allowed to see an ultrasound picture of their baby. Isn't that incredible? It's one of the areas where we're winning the fight. There's a huge racial disparity in abortions, and that's a problem. It's a problem of racism. About 85% of women who had abortions in the U.S. were unmarried. As of this date, since the Roe v. Wade decision, nearly 60 million babies have died due to the abortion industry. More than 1 million every year. Sobering, isn't it? These things should shake us up a little bit and, and, and should bother us and should, should just disturb us to our core because of what this represents against God's creation. One more stat that I really appreciate. Today, there are two-thirds less abortion providers than 25 years ago. It's a fight that is still going on. It's a winnable fight, a a fight that we need to engage in. Just before we start, I need to give give credit for where it's it's due. Uh, Over the years, I've had a number of, of things that I've wanted to put down on paper about the abortion debate and some arguments and from science and some other things. And as I'm reading and realizing that there are some just wonderful apologists for the pro-life movement out there, I, I'm, I'm really sharing some of their thoughts today and, and taking some of the thoughts of, of um, some of these men like Scott Klusendorf and John Stone Street and Randy Alcorn and Tim Challies and Greg Kokel. And, and so please don't think that I've come up with all these things. 
And my goal today is to point you to resources, because what's been so wonderful to see is the pro-life community, the Christian community, as they're writing about it and as they're talking about it, what's happening is they're starting to refine each other and refine the arguments to really persuasive arguments that are powerful in our society. And so the authors are all sharing some of those arguments. And I want to share some of those arguments today. Because as a Christian world, as as a Christian community, if we can stand with a united front and say these are some of the ways we can approach and engage this issue that are winsome, that are persuasive, that work, then by all means, let's copy each other. Let's plagiarize, but we're giving credit, so not plagiarism. I also want to just start by saying where we're going today. Because this is a topic that some of you come in with all kinds of different opinions. Some of you are decided. Some of you are undecided. Some of you have been touched by abortion in the past, whether it be yourself or someone you know, and, and there's pain and there's shame. And so right up front, I want you to know where we're going. The first place I want to go is I want to respectfully make a biblical and scientific case that elective abortion is immoral. It is the intentional killing of an innocent human being not going to pull punches with our words this morning. We need to call it what it is. So many times I've seen just a a fear of saying this is what it is because we don't want to offend or we don't want to hurt it. And we don't want to cause offense by our presentation. But the truth is, it is the killing of an innocent human being. It's what we believe. It's what I believe is truth. Not just because it's part of our, our... Um, doctrinal statement, but I believe it's a defendable truth and we stand for it. But then also, secondly, where we're going today is we need to keep God's grace as part of the message. Because if you're sitting here saying, don't hit me over the head with that again, my message for you today is God's grace is sufficient. And it is huge and it is overwhelming. And His forgiveness is complete. Catch that? His forgiveness is complete. And so we can deal with a weighty issue and we can deal with how to engage our culture while at the same time giving our own emotions and our own feelings to God and saying His grace is enough. So that's where we're going today. I want to start by sharing what our Constitution says and I have some slides and hopefully we get this to work. Titled today, Loving God and Loving Others by Defending Life. But this is our statement of faith um, as a church because we want to be very clear where we stand. We believe that life begins at conception and that since all humans are created in God's image, all unborn children have intrinsic value and are to be treasured and nurtured. Willfully taking the life of an unborn child, except when the life of a mother is threatened, is reprehensible to God and against His will. We're going to break down parts of that, but this is a clear statement that I so appreciate is in our statement of faith. It's in our constitution, so we can't just willy-nilly change it because this is what we believe is true. This is what we believe Scripture teaches, but this is also what we believe creation and how God created the world teaches. This is what we believe God has instructed us to flourish as His people. 
The other thing I want to mention today is we'd like to look at this topic through the lens of our theme this year and where we're going this year. Two weeks ago, I talked about our vision for the year uh, of learning how to love God and to love others and to, to see all of the commands through that, to see how those apply to everything. And so I put a, a, my statement is elective abortion is immoral as it is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. It's what I want to, to prove today and give you tools to be able to prove that to others but we want to see that through the lens of love God, love others. How do we take this topic, a difficult topic, and make sure that we are loving God by, by viewing His creation and especially His image bearers through His lens? But how do we make sure we're loving others in how we present it? Quite frankly, I think at times the, the pro-life movement has argued and yelled too much. And we have not presented arguments in a winsome and persuasive way. Going up to somebody at a rally and saying, you're going to burn in hell, you baby killer, that doesn't help. It does not allow us to engage. I would go as far as to say even wearing shirts like abortion kills, while it's true, it doesn't allow us to engage in an argument that changes minds. And it puts defensive up, defenses up. We've got to approach this in a different way and in a strategic way as believers. And so we want to look at how can we do this in the lens of love God and love others. So let's start with love God. Whoopsie. When we say that, that we love God, we want to start by thinking of Him as Creator. God is creator and man is made in his image. These are, this is the theological underpinnings of our, our view and what we're going to say about the, uh, the, the pro-life um, assertion. In Genesis 1, 26 through 27, turn with me there. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one right under one of the seats there. If you don't have one at home, take that with you. That's yours. We want you to have God's word with you. But Genesis, if you're not sure where Genesis is, first, first book in there, first chapter. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And we come to the beginning. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And right from the start, we have a theology that man, male and female, are created different. There is something uniquely and inherently different about you and I than my cat. Right? We know that. Now, now culture actually is struggling with that. When we see that, that when we see court penalties where you have, uh, you have um, jail time that's two, three times as long for killing a cat as, as killing a child or killing a baby. There's problems in our culture. But will you agree with me just right up front? There is something inherently different about you and I than our cats and dogs. This is the, the, the underpinnings of that. What's different is we are made in the image of God and in the likeness of God. And there's all kinds of debate about what that means. But for me, I I summarize that and he has put a cognitive, relational soul in us. 
that is different from all other beings. God can have relationship with you and I, and he wants relationship with you and I that is different than the relationship you have with your dog. Because it's cognitive. We are people after the image of God. As image bearers, every human life is valuable and worth defending. That's the foundation of sanctity of life. As image bearers, every human life is valuable and worth defending. See, the basis for this is our love for God. And get this, this is where love God and love others comes into play. If I love God, I am going to view His creation as His creation. I am going to love His creation because He loves His creation. What's more than that, if He has made you and I in His image, which He has then there's something inherently about you that shows me who the Creator is. And I can't help but love you if I love God. Now this means all human life. It means life in the womb. It means life at the end of life when, when again, there's dependency and pain and all kinds of debate right now over assisted suicide. It means life that that we look at as, as mentally challenged or as having difficulties or handicaps. All life has value. All human life is valuable and worth defending. And so if we love God, we will honor His image bearers. We will protect and love them. To destroy ones made in the image of God is an affront to God Himself. Does that make sense? Just a, a little taste of that. I, I can remember in college, went down to a, a Christian college in San Diego. Though we remain nameless. We're going to a basketball game. I was a basketball announcer for Biola's team. None of you thought I was on the team. But um, I was the announcer. And we went down to announce the game. And I remember going in the gymnasium, announcing the game. And they had taken a, a, a dummy, and, or they had made a dummy of our star player, and they had hung that player by a noose over the court. Did that promote certain feelings inside the Biola people? Oh, yeah. And, and to our shame, there were cars that were broken into that night and windows broke. It, it just inflamed this whole situation because there was something inside that said that was wrong. That was just a stupid little dummy. Imagine what the killing of an innocent human life made in the image of God says about what we think about God. Do you get the connection? Does that make sense? This is serious. This is something that, that we want to think through. James 3, James talks about this when he talks about the tongue. And he says in verse th- uh, chapter 3, verse 9, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And the foundation for James's argument is how dare we talk and curse, talk in a certain way or curse people made in the image of God? How dare we? They're made in the image of God. How much more do we have to come to the pro-life argument and say how much more is killing them than just cursing? If we're to be careful with how we talk to image bearers, how much more are we to be careful of how we defend the innocent? One last verse I want to share under this, Exodus 23, 7, and going through some of the laws of the Old Testament, which again can be summed up in love God and love others. There's a section that, that, um, 
Then this one, he says, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And we see that the innocent are made in the image of God. And we have a responsibility, if we love God, to protect them. Now the argument here, as you're talking with someone, they might agree with all of that. And their, their argument might be, okay, that's great. We should protect image bearers of God and all are made in His image. But that fetus is not a person yet. Have you heard that argument? So let's, let's talk about that. And that's where I want to spend some time this morning. See, the, the, the found, this is the foundational argument. This is the question to ask. And I want to give a, a, a simple argument, a simple way that we can introduce this conversation to others. And again, I didn't come up with this. Um, this is what some other men much smarter than I have on this. The argument is this. Elective abortion unjustly takes the life of an innocent human being, right? Because the simple argument that you can turn into questions, and, and it's best to engage this topic with questions and dialogue. Premise number one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Most people will agree with that. I would dare say almost everyone I've talked to would agree with that, unless they know where I'm going and they're trying to to get out of it already. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. These are simple, straightforward assertions. The idea when we're engaging the abortion debate is we've got to break through all of the surrounding issues and all of the, the, the smoke that people put up, and we need to get down to the root issue and how do we deal with this. Elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, elective abortion is a moral wrong. I was listening to Scott Klusendorf, and he, he said he was sharing this with somebody on the plane, and then he said, okay, which of those things do you disagree with? Tell me where I've gone wrong. And we can talk about that. Is this pretty simple? Do you think you could remember the, these three things? And you word them in questions. So, so do you think it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd never do that. Wouldn't want to do that. So, so elective abortion, do you think that intentionally kills an innocent human being? Now, there you might get a different answer. Some might say yes, and so then you go to the conclusion and show them where their thinking leads to, because it's just real logical. Some might say, well, no, I don't think it's a human being. Then we engage that question. But we've gotten down to the root question for the issue, is this fetus a human being? And that's the question to ask. The summary, if the unborn child is an innocent human being, then elective abortion is always morally wrong. Always is important. And so the big question, is the unborn baby human? That's that's the bottom line. Does human life start at conception? So I want to look at that from a biblical perspective, from a scientific perspective. The biblical perspective is more for us, so we know the the, the foundation of our theology. But if you're talking to your neighbor who could care less about the Bible, don't go there first. That makes sense? Go to some other arguments because this is winnable on the scientific front. So we want to start with the biblical case. Life begins at conception. Psalm 139, 13 through 16, a verse that we read and. I just want to read some of these verses. I'll put some summaries up on the screen. But if you want to turn to those, you can. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. And these are some of the key ones. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And we see in the psalm passage this beautiful description of God at work in the womb. God creating in the womb. And, and, and if you look at all these verses, he, he doesn't say things like, what you were doing in the womb became me. He says, I was being knitted together in your womb. There, there's a personhood language that we have to catch that in the womb there is person, personhood. We are image bearers. These are human beings. God had every day for us written before we were born. We see the, the wonderful creation there. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me read some more verses. Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And we see God intentionally creating life, intentionally with a purpose, even in the womb. I love Luke 141. It's a familiar story, but it reminds us so clearly of the personhood of the fetus or the baby in the womb. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, and so Mary's coming along, and she's already pregnant with Jesus. Elizabeth is already pregnant with John the Baptist. They're seeing each other for the first time. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. I've got to say, why did the baby leap? It just, you know, a little bit of indigestion. Even that assumes personhood and assumes the ability to respond to stimuli. But in the womb, John the Baptist was able to sense the whole, Jesus Christ, to sense the deity that was in Mary's womb. Life already had happened. This was not a blob of cells that happened to move around because another really cool blob of cells was close by. Sort of ridiculous when you think about it that way, right? Some say, well, the Bible never says anything about the unborn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Exodus 21, another one of the commands. This is, this is just really straightforward. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. So we have a situation where two men are fighting, and, and they happen to hit a pregnant woman, and she, she gives birth to the babies. Okay? So she, she's pregnant. Verse 23. But if there is harm, and this is what we have to notice, if there is harm, what happens? It's just a blob of cells. Then you shall pay life for life. It's a direct statement that the unborn is alive. And that the penalties for what we do to unborn are the same as what we do to the born. We could go on about the biblical case. and I, I want to give an overview this morning, so I want to keep moving. But we know theologically, because we are made in the image of God, because life begins at conception, abortion is morally evil. Does that make sense? Biblically? So how do you share that with your neighbor? 
And that's where I think we go to some of the scientific and logical case. And, and remember, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's okay to think through these things logically. It's okay to come up with good strategy and good reasons for why we believe. Because there are good reasons. I, I've got to say, this issue of life is being won on the science front through ultrasounds that are being shown. It, it is... The, the tide is shifting in the younger generation. There are more pro-life views than ever before since Roe v. Wade because they're seeing ultrasounds. They're, they're seeing these things that they cannot deny that this is life. One speaker I was listening to this week was saying that he thinks in 50 years this issue will be done and decided. And we'll look back as a culture, Christian and non-Christian, and think what a tragedy we were doing to those lives. I understand where he's going because it's a winnable argument. I, I don't quite agree because the heart is desperately wicked. And even though we can prove it scientifically, in the end, people's comfort and people's personal desires just might win. But that doesn't mean we don't engage. Scott Klusendorf says, the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. If you want to explore those three words, his book is fantastic. I, I have it in your notes at the end as a, a resource. Distinct, living, and whole human beings. But let's just talk about some of the, the scientific talk, talking points that I think are, are pertinent, easy to talk with your neighbor about. From conception, from conception, that baby possesses separate and unique DNA from its mother. The argument, well, it's, it's just part of the mom's body. The problem is it's different DNA in those cells. It's a different blood type from as soon as, as blood starts. That DNA possesses all of the genetic material that baby needs to grow into adulthood, to grow into you and I. It possesses all of the genetic material. The DNA is complete. In fact, if you look at textbooks today of human embryology, most of them concur that life begins at conception. Did you realize that? The, the non-Christian medical scientific world believes, for the most part, life begins at conception. I, and I couldn't believe that, actually, when I started researching, and I just started reading textbook after textbook, and example after example. And chillingly, people in the abortion industry that would concede that point and say we're going to do it anyway. From one textbook, a new genetically distinct human organism, did you catch that? Human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend. Another, another textbook, Clinically Oriented um, Embryology. A zygote is the beginning of a new human being. For example, an embryo. These are not Christian sources. This is what the scientific community is coming to understand. A Planned Parenthood ad and brochure from 1964, a long time ago, when answering the question about whether or not, or not an abortion is birth control, states, absolutely not. An abortion ends the life of a baby after it has begun. That's Planned Parenthood. Does that send chills? To, to be able to say that and pursue what they're pursuing. Think about DNA for a minute. How many of you watch, watch crime shows, cop shows? What, what's always the kicker? 
they find a little piece of evidence, right? And they do DNA testing. And they creatively find a way to get the DNA from the suspect. And they match them. And if they match, they are 100% sure that this person did it. Because DNA is unique to a human being. The fact that the unborn babies have unique and separate DNA proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is not part of the mom's body. It's a human being that is being developed in the mom's body. A couple of other thoughts. The cells of the unborn, and and this is out of some other um, secular textbook, the cells of the unborn all function together in a coordinated manner for that unborn. If you think of an unborn baby, their cells are all growing, they're developing, and heart and bones and hands and eyes. That's all for that organism. It's not for mom. Mom doesn't sprout a third arm during pregnancy. It's the baby that is growing. And so it is a separate organism. It's cells functioning as a unique organism. Again, these are just all things that give us some scientific talking points. Some other things. And these have to do with some other days. You might say, well, these aren't quite at conception. But we know that 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 unborn is a, a human being, is life from conception. And these are just other ways of proving that. All of these that I'm about to say occur before almost all surgical abortions. So keep that in mind. Between five and nine days, the gender can already be determined. Not through an ultrasound, but scientifically. If they were to to take some of those cells, they could already determine gender five to nine days. And for timing, I'm using from conception. Okay, so I I know in pregnancy, there's there's two different ways of computing times. I'm going to use from conception. Fair enough? The heartbeat is already beating and blood flowing 21 days from conception. Women are just figuring out they're pregnant usually at that point. This is pre-abortion. The heart is already beating. Six to eight weeks of gestation, readable brain waves are already there. In fact, they're already able to respond to stimuli. The nervous system is developed enough to where a touch or some stimuli they can already recoil from. Think about that because all of these are before surgical abortions, which means all surgical abortions are stopping a beating heart, are stopping brain waves, and are to a baby that can feel the pain. This was a hard, hard sermon to study for. Because it's oppressing to see what we're doing. Randy Alcorn sums it up this way. It is an indisputable scientific fact that each and every legal surgical abortion stops a beating heart and stops already measurable brain waves. How do we determine death? Think about this logically. And these are talking points. How do we determine that someone has died? No brain waves. Heart stops beating. If the heart's beating in their brain waves, no doctor would give a death certificate. But yet, when we talk about life and trying to define life, we're not willing to use the same criteria as a culture. Finally, a couple more things on the the philosophical side. And there's so much more on these we could talk about, and I'm giving resources that will, will help you. We instinctively know as a culture that the unborn is a baby, don't we? And this, is, this isn't my, my leading argument, but in talking to someone, I'll eventually talk, talk about this. So many of you that are, are young moms and dads, on Facebook, you often post announcements that you're pregnant. In fact, you're not really pregnant until it's on Facebook, right? And, and 
what is one of the ways that, one of the most popular ways that people announce it? A picture, right? Maybe a picture by the stomach or a picture, a, a picture in a box or something. What's the picture of? The ultrasound. I have never had a parent tell me, look at this beautiful blob of cells. It's really cute. Now, I have issues whether any ultrasound is cute, but that, that's, that's a whole different... Why do we think it's cute? It's not the picture. It's the concept of life and what God is doing. If it was just a blob of cells, if it wasn't life, we'd be saying, oh, look, what a cute little tumor. Because that's what we call a blob of cells that isn't your own body growing inside you. Make sense? Do you see some talking points out of some of this? But we have to be careful how we speak about it. You know, I I don't get sarcastic when I'm talking to someone about it. I can be a little sarcastic here. You guys know me. Hopefully some grace. But we need to be winsome and persuasive. Love to go into all the differences and we're we're running out of time. Uh, One of the things you can go to is, okay, ask the question, what is the difference between an unborn baby and a a born baby? What what makes them different? What about that that passage through the birth canal suddenly makes them human? And and you can get all kinds of reasons. Um, Stephen Swartz, and and you'll find it in any of the books, gave, gave four different things that are different between the unborn and the the born. And he uses the acronym SLED. I think I have this up there, SLED. This deserves a a whole time of talking on its own, so I'm just going to give it to you quickly and you can read up a little bit more. He says the size. The preborn is smaller than born humans, and so some argue that it's a smaller organism. Praise God that we aren't judged human or not by size. Some of you are really tall. You're more human. Some of you are really short. I am so sorry. (laughs) Do you see how ludicrous it is? But yet we say if it's it's, uh, this little ball of of cells, uh, a size of a tennis ball, it's not human. No, that's a life. His second one is L, level of development. The preborn is less developed than the born human. But our level of development doesn't determine our humanity. My three kids are not as developed as my wife and I. Some of you may argue about me, but they're not as developed. Does that mean they're less human? No, it means they're less mature. And so we can't go to the, well, the fetus isn't developed yet, so it's not human. Oh, really? E, environment, location. Well, when they're, when they're inside the mom's body, they're not human. And when they're out, they are. Does, does location affect humanity and personhood anywhere else? And these, again, are, are great discussions to have and, and treat them as discussion. D, degree of dependency. The preborn is more dependent on its mother than the born human. But again, our degree of dependency doesn't determine our humanity. Think about that one for a minute because this is also one of our struggles as society in the sanctity of life because people are latching onto this and saying if the elderly are too dependent, then they should be killed. We need to watch this one, guys, because this one is under attack as well. You can read more about that. 
in the end? Oh, oh, one other thought, uh, one of the quotes that I, I heard one of the authors say that he had heard, I personally am opposed to, opposed to abortion. It is morally wrong, but I'm glad it's legal. We need to, to understand that for what it is. It's saying, I know it's wrong, but I still want an out for me if I get in a circumstance that I don't know what to do with. This is where we're at. We need to call abortion what it is. The wording is important. The unborn is not just a blob of cells. It's not just terminating a pregnancy. It's the willful tearing apart of a helpless baby for the supposed benefit of another. And that's hard to say and hard to hear, but it's true. An article that that Pastor Andrew pointed out to me this week that I was reading was comparing uh, abortion to child sacrifice. Because elective abortion is always, well, I don't have time for a baby. It's going to inconvenient me. I don't think I could love it. I don't think I have the resources. But yet, incidentally, no mom would apply that to her toddler. But we're willing to kill the unborn for personal preferences. How is that not child sacrifice? The unborn are image bearers. If we love God, if we love the Creator, we will love all in His image. Ultimately, love God is the, is the problem. Because when we support abortion, when we go down that path, we are loving ourselves more than our Creator. I need to move on. Love God, love others. So how do we approach this issue from the aspect of loving others and defending life? I would encourage us to think of four different groups that need to be loved in this. And this defines how we talk about it, how we feel about it, the mercy we're able to show, the compassion, the way that we make our arguments. The first is the unborn. We love them by standing up for them, by engaging rather than avoiding. Now, you know me. I I believe our purpose should be the glory of God. We should be about the gospel. We should be about making disciples. And you might say, well, this might distract from that. Defending unborn potential disciples is not distracting from that. We want to be careful that we don't get consumed with political activism, but standing up in some different ways for truth is right and just. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. We need to love others and love those unborn babies and weep for them and have our hearts broken for them. We also need to love the pregnant mom. It is so easy to vilify those that are going in for abortion. But we need to start loving them and putting ourselves in their shoes. What about the young teenage girl that is feeling so trapped and so desperate and has no idea what to do and has no one in her life that's loving her and guiding her and she feels completely alone. Most women are not excited to go get an abortion. It's because they feel they are hopeless, in a hopeless situation and have no other recourse. We need to love them and have compassion for them. This is why I so appreciate the work of Crisis Pregnancy Centers and why we need to be praying for crisis pregnancy centers. We need to be supporting them. 
because they are, are filling that gap and saying, if you are, are desperate and don't know what to do, come talk to us. And it's not just don't get an abortion, don't get an abortion, but how can we help you? How can we provide medical care? How can we meet your needs? I have seen people in this church that have taken in an unwed mother that's pregnant and provided and given her a home. That is loving the, the unwed pregnant woman. That's what we need to be doing, church. We're not going to convince the mom not to get an abortion by yelling at her. We're going to convince her by loving her, letting her see ultrasounds, letting her see truth, but providing hope, ultimately the hope of Jesus Christ. We need to love those that have had abortions. Satan would love to take an action that's in the past and hold it over your head for the rest of your lives. I've read the stats. I am not naive. I would bet we've been touched by abortion in this church. And we've been touched by all kinds of other sin because we are all miserable wretches in our sin, saved by the grace of God. And if you've been through the pain of an abortion or if you love someone and close to someone that's been through a pain of an abortion, we want you here because we are all in the same boat that need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And because of his forgiveness, because it's enough, we know that when we repent and we come to him, that is completely washed clean. We will not hold it over your heads because God does not hold it over your heads. Amen for any of us with our sin and our past. And we take a familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, and so there's repentance, confessing, you are right, I am wrong. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's done, it's taken care of. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to love those that have abortion somewhere in their past because it is painful because there's been a, a, a culture that no one will talk about it that brings shame that brings hurt God is enough guys his grace is enough and we need to be a healing community that say I don't care Jesus is enough and I love you and I'm going to walk with you and we're going to find a way through this together See, if, if we go yelling and, and on our soapbox about being anti-abortion and we're not willing to show the grace, then we've lost the sanctity of life and we've lost what it means to honor image bearers. Fourth one, as we come to a close, we need to love those that disagree with us. We need to love those that disagree with us. Doesn't mean we don't engage. Make sense? This is the filter through which we engage. So when I'm talking to my neighbor that, that is just adamantly pro-abortion and, and a woman's white right to choose, I can still love him. I'm going to engage him. I'm going to, to use the syllogism or the, or the premises, and we're going to explore that. But I'm going to do it in a respectful and loving way. We need to talk in a winsome way. That's how we open people to a different way of thinking. We need to be loving and persuasive. And when I say persuasive, that means we need to study. 
We need to know what we want to say. We need to be ready with answers. A couple of tools that I I have for you guys this morning, and then we'll have worship team come up because we've got to end in worship today. First one is a a guide called 21 Days of Prayer for Life. This is by Scott Klusendorf and John Stone Street. Um, The the Colson Center for Worldview, Christian Worldview has put it out. I have about 10 of them on the back that you can take, but on, on our Facebook page and on our Facebook group today, I've posted the PDF we're going to get it up on our website a little bit later. Um, or if you just want to go to the, the Colson Center's website and look for 21 days, you'll find it. This is a fabulous resource. This is my highest recommendation today. Not only does it step us through praying for those that are unborn and praying for the issue, at the beginning, it summarizes a lot of the things I've talked about today and, and some other things. It gives you the tools to engage. So if you're scared of, of long books, this is for you. It summarizes it. Number one resource that I would recommend today. A couple of other books that, that we have. This one's called The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf. It talks about the sled analogy. It talks about the, the premises. This is actually in our church library. In case you don't know, we have a library. It's in the back. There are fabulous resources there. They don't know it, but this has been stolen out of the church library. <laughs> sorry, sorry, ladies. I'll put it back. <laughs> um, Take this, read this, know what we believe. Randy Alcorn, Why Pro-Life, is a a little bit smaller book that I I highly recommend both of those. In the back of Scott Klusendorf's book, actually are a number of objections people might share with you and how we can winsomely answer those and persuasively answer those. Be ready to engage. Pray for those that are engaging. Pray for those that are fostering and adopting. If you can foster and adopt, it's a great way to help. One last thing in this election cycle, I encourage you to vote. And to vote as you're voting, look at the candidate's stand on life. There's not too many litmus tests I have for voting. There's, there's things I might disagree with candidates on, foreign affairs or even monetary policy. But the sanctity of life is a litmus test because it exposes an underlying worldview of the dignity of human life. And if one of our leaders does not uphold the dignity of human life, it's not just abortion that's at stake. It's how they deal with other countries. It's how we deal with the poor in our country. It's how we deal with so many different issues, how we deal with the elderly, how we deal with education. It affects everything because it's a self-worldview rather than a creator-oriented worldview. So pay attention this election cycle. It matters. Write letters to your congressmen and women. Let's engage. Let's be ready. Oh, Lord God, we confess as a nation of the sin of abortion, the sin of killing little tiny image bearers. And Lord, I pray that we as your church would stand for truth and we would stand for the rights of the defenseless because we love you. And we would do it in a way that shows we love others. Lord, help us to be willing to engage a fallen society with salt and light, ultimately knowing they need you and they need the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there's any here this morning that have been touched with the pain of abortion, that you would bring healing right now, that you would bring your love and grace to bear in their lives 
that they would know that you are a great God and your grace is great and your love is great and we can have a relationship with you. Bring freedom from the past. Lord, may we be equipped to do your work, to be your mouthpieces. In Jesus' name, amen.